1: Well, folks, I hope you're strapped in because it's going to be another wild ride. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I'm sure most of us have been around long enough to realize there are a lot of forces in the world we can't control, some we can't identify, and even a few we can't seem to simply detect. Add in the fact that society has bred us to be little more than cogs in the big machine, content to spend the eight hours a day on mundane tasks if it means a little green paper and some entertaining screens to sit behind for the other sixteen. And it's safe to say that we've lost our self-sufficiency and with it our ability to navigate or even just survive in the natural world. And that's when it's acting normal. Well, when one of us does break off from the herd here in the Great American Terrarium, the worst place they can end up is as one of the many mysterious cases of missing people lost to the wilderness covered in one of the books or films of today's returning guest, David Politis. We had David here to talk about his missing 411 work back in 2014 when it was really just getting started. And now the cases he's chronicled are totaling over 1,200, spanning 59 clusters, 8 massive books, and now 2 films as well. For the uninitiated, David is an avid outdoorsman who has spent over 20 years in law enforcement and senior executive positions in the technology sector, and he's also the director of the Can-Am Missing Project. Many moons ago, David received information from national park rangers that led him to dig deeper into missing people in national parks, only to find out that many people seem to disappear under very strange circumstances that often hit many of the odd profile points he's gathered over the years of research. Add in the fact that the national park system doesn't seem to keep a list of missing people, at least that they're willing to share or talk about, They're very uncooperative with David's research, and they act damn near adversarial in a lot of instances, and this only fuels the mystery. Yes, in fact, I think it's safe to say that at this point, David's missing 411 work has become so popular it's basically created its own subgenre of paranormal conversations, and the speculative search for answers has run the gamut from Bigfoot kidnappings and alien abductions to Native American curses, secret government projects, and portal places. Today, we're going to talk about some of the cases covered in the new film, Missing 411, The Hunted, as well as some from his latest book, Missing 411, Law, Land, Air, and Water. And if we do our job right, you'll be as puzzled as you are paranoid. So without further ado, the great disappearance detective and the father of Missing 411, David, my man, welcome back to The Higher Side.
0: Hey, Greg, thanks for having me. Always fun to talk to you.
1: Ah, thanks, man. Yes, this is a real treat. I'm sure every host in the game is thrilled when they get to have you on because this work is so unique. You're a disciplined researcher, and the case studies are amazing. Of course, your work started in national parks mainly in North America, but also across most of the English-speaking world, and has since expanded a bit to include other wilderness areas with about 59 or 60 identified clusters now, Maybe to get started here, you can elaborate for us about how the work has changed or expanded since our first conversation five years ago. Is Yosemite National Park still the largest cluster of missing people anywhere in the world?
0: You know, Greg, it is. When we first started out, got a tip from two national park rangers that they had experienced a series of missing people in their various parks that they'd worked at. And There was something unusual about it because they couldn't find documents that they were looking for afterwards, and they said that there was a lot of hype and a lot of support for the first seven to ten days, and then after the search was over, there was nothing. And they thought that where these people were missing was unusual. Not all the missing go away deep in the backcountry. Sometimes it's a public area or a semi-public area in the heart of the park, and it doesn't make any sense. So... With that, we started off, and we focused mainly on national parks, and we filed a series of Freedom of Information Act requests against the National Park Service. They stated that they didn't have any lists of missing people, and we went through their National Park Police Department, which are highly trained men and women that are very good at their job, but for some reason, they didn't want to admit that they had any lists. And talking to many investigative journalists, they said they're lying. They've got a list. They've got to have a list. Your listeners could go into any medium and small police department in the U.S. and ask the chief of police for a list of missing people in their jurisdiction, and that chief would have a list on his desk in an hour. And after that, we went through and started to look at national parks really, really closely because we wanted to understand why they weren't giving up the list. And we just did a dive, a deep, deep dive into archives. And after almost nine years now of research, Yosemite finally came out with a list of missing people only after I had written about all of them or addressed them in interviews. So that was not a mystery, but no other national park or monument has. So I routinely get asked how many people are missing in national parks and monuments, and I have no idea. It'd be a complete guess. And in my line of work, once you guess and are proved wrong, Your credibility is lost. So I don't guess on a lot of things. I I try to keep my comments strictly factual. And that's how we slowly evolved from national parks to national forests, Bureau of Land Management, federally owned land, and even some private land now. Mm. And after you look at hundreds of cases, certain things start to become apparent. But then after you look at thousands of cases, things start to pop out at you. And when I was a police officer, I worked a few task forces where we were looking at robbery suspects and rapists, and we'd have a big bulletin board on the office wall, and we would put pins in the wall where these people hit, and we tried to map out where they would go next. And I took that, and I put it into this research, and I said, you know, I remember a lot of people being missing from Yosemite. And I said, and there were a lot of people missing from Rainier and i said you know i'm going to get a big us map and start putting pins in it just like i did it as i was a cop and eventually after several years these clusters of these geographical clusters of missing people started to become apparent now not everybody who goes missing in the wild i'm interested in i'm sorry for him but i'm not interested hmm. we go through a vetting process that vetting process includes there's no mental health issues with the victim there's no suicide, etc. There's no evidence of criminal involvement, meaning there's no crime. Also, there's no evidence that the person, say, was assisted in some way in disappearing. Other things that we vet out are predation cases, meaning persons killed by a mountain lion, black bear, brown bear, et cetera. Any evidence of any of that found by search and rescue, we won't look at it. And after looking at thousands of cases, there's certain what we call profile points that have come out that are pretty apparent. And if the case doesn't match those profile points, then we won't look at it. So the profile points I've kind of outlined in the book, the most popular ones are they bring canines to the scene. Canines can't pick up a track or they can't find a scent. Sometimes they walk in a circle and lay down. They bring in professional trackers. They can't find tracks leaving the scene. And there's a weather event sometimes with the disappearance. Sometimes just as the person is disappearing or just as search and rescue starts to work the case, they have a weather event of snow, rain, wind, something that inhibits the searches. And that's kind of the 10,000-foot overall profile. Mm. Yes, those
1: are two of the most intriguing profile points. And... A great introduction or reintroduction for people. And you are so respected for that discipline to stick to just the facts. You leave the crazy speculation to hosts like me. And that's what I think people like about you. And it is kind of crazy. Some of the other profile points, victims are often found in areas that were previously searched, sometimes missing clothes or shoes. When they are found alive, they have a lack of memory of where they've been. And another one that's weird is geographically, a lot of these are found near rivers, creeks, or ponds, or boulders and granite. And people might say, well, what else is out in the wild? You know, you might as well say they go missing near trees, but that is pretty significant,
0: right? We think so. And the granite part of it is Yosemite, and there's the most granite you'll find anywhere in the world, is there? And that was part of it. And then when you start to think, when I say proximity to water, I'm talking about close proximity. Sometimes to the point of being ridiculous, and I wrote a book called Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence, which has to do with people that are found directly in water. And you think, well, that's a drowning case, you know, that's pretty obvious. Well, when you read the book, it's not so obvious. And coroners and medical examiners have contacted me and said, yeah, something strange is coming on because we can't find a cause of death on most of these people, and that is not normal. Mm,
1: mm-hmm. And I remember when we talked before, the great majority of cases was largely about children back then, and a lot of these children were not found alive. If they were, they couldn't really say much about what happened. I think there was one girl who mentioned that she met a strange bear creature. But in these last five years... When you've examined cases where people are found alive, is this loss of memory still a huge factor? Have you gotten any kind of clues to the mystery from people who have survived their own disappearances?
0: You know, I learned long ago that we won't proactively, 99.9% of the time, go out and try to talk to a victim. And when you go into a new research arena, you are a fool if you don't contact people that are already there and understand where the landmines are at. So that's what I did. I went out and I talked to a couple of missing persons groups, and they said, well, the number one thing to remember is that these people are traumatized. Many of them don't want to talk about it, and many of them don't want to talk about it for years. So if you're going to go out and proactively reach out to them and then write about their story later on, they may feel re-victimized and be angry at you. So I haven't done that. And there are just a very, very few instances where I felt I had to, and I did, and it worked out okay. So I usually get my facts on the periphery from other police officers, search and rescue coordinators, reports that they've written, and I glean the facts off of those. Sometimes even the news gets some things right. But as I've stated in many books, the articles about missing people are about 50 to 75% incorrect when you look at it and you get down into it. People these days, a lot of reporters, aren't making a big effort to get their facts right, unfortunately.
1: Mm. Yes, I understand the hesitancy to talk to the victims themselves. The research is important, but you also want to do no harm. And as I mentioned our last conversation, we focused on the odd cases that involve mainly children under about 10 years old who seem to go missing almost in the blink of an eye when their parents turn their heads for just a minute and are found oftentimes days later and miles and miles from where they went missing. Sometimes they took off their shoes. Sometimes the body, alive or dead, showed up on a previously searched path. And the whole thing, from the distance traveled to the resistance from the park services, was very suspicious. And these child cases also seemed to be the subject matter of that first film, right?
0: That's correct. And... A lot of people didn't understand why we did that. It's pretty easy when you get down to the bare bones. First of all, if you're not a parent, sometimes it's difficult to understand and appreciate the angles we took in this movie. And in that first one, there were a lot of kids that I had written about where they had walked a phenomenal distance in the woods. Sometimes, again, it's hard to grasp the importance of this if you don't have kids and you don't know, hey, my kid could never do that. Or my kid couldn't walk 3,000 feet up the side of a mountain at three or four years old. So the importance to that is the parents out there, when you watch the movie and you said, this isn't happening, this isn't normal. And that was the point of it.
1: Yes, I really, really enjoyed that first film. And to get into the second film, this newest one, Missing 411, The Hunted, and also Material that's in your more recent books, you focused a bit more on hunters that go missing, which is interesting for different reasons. The kids, of course, shouldn't be able to get as far as they do, and these situations are mysterious because of their helplessness, but hunters, these cases are mysterious because of their familiarity with the woods and their resourcefulness.
0: Exactly. And a lot of people don't think about this, but I'll throw it out there is that almost all of the hunters, I'd say, 75% of the ones I've written about are armed. And when you're armed with a rifle or a pistol, that's an excellent device to signal for help. And hunters are trained that when you go missing, sit down, fire off three rounds in fairly rapid succession. Wait an hour, fire off three more rounds. That'll tell you the friends that are looking for you where you're at and how they can hone in on you. So that's a device that most people hiking don't have. But it's one of the reasons I tell people when they go into the woods hiking to carry a firearm. Now, the opposite end of that are archery hunters. And they disappear at a higher incidence per capita than armed hunters, which is unusual. Now, I also tell archery men and women to carry a pistol with them when they're out there as well. But the archery people and the firearms people many of these men and women have hunted the same areas for decades. Some of them own their own hunting camps. And yet, even though they know this area, like you know, your backyard, they disappear. And the weird thing is they disappear and nothing's found. And I mean, there's no firearms found, there's nothing found. And that makes no sense because an animal isn't going to drag away a gun. Mm -hmm. Now, the people that initially have that knee-jerk reaction will say, their mind will go to some place to make it right. Okay, well, maybe they fell down, broke their leg and died. Uh-huh. Then one of the canines, sometimes dozens that are brought to the scene, should have been able to track that person right to the place they went down. Other people will say, well, you know, they got attacked by a mountain lion or a bear, and they died, and they got drug away. Well, again, once you've seen a predation scene, and you can go on a Google and Yahoo And you can put in bear attack, mountain lion attack, and you can see what those scenes look like. They're gruesome. They're easy to find. There's clothing that's torn up. There's blood everywhere. I mean, you cannot miss it. Now, the search and rescue coordinators are all trained on how to find these things. Now, a hunter who's out there who's a predator themselves looking for game, they're out there because, number one, they usually know the area very well. They've practiced their sport many times in the past. Sometimes they've hunted the area hundreds of times. They're carrying a weapon, so they're a formidable opponent. Now, how can these people just disappear and never be found? And people think, well, yeah, you know, maybe that happens once in a while. But in my book, Missing 411 Hunters, it's happened hundreds of times.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, great point that hunters are going to have way more supplies than children. They're going to be way more equipped. So when no trace is found, that's even stranger and never a shot fired in the vast majority of these cases. So they definitely don't see whatever this problem is coming. They don't even fire shots off to signal they're lost. There are some cases in the film that it doesn't even seem like the person... Realized they were lost because of some of the strange details as you said they don't drop the gun or anything this stuff around the gun i mean the more i sat with it the weirder it was what does that say to you that these missing people hundreds of cases don't even fire off a shot that their hunting partners in the nearby area would even hear
0: so in the movie we highlighted a case where a person was a a hunter safety instructor for decades and then he had his firearm, he was in very close proximity to other hunters, and something that most hunters do carry is a walkie-talkie to communicate with their partners. Well, the walkie talkies never used, the rifles are never found, they're never heard going off, so when you put that in a cumulative arena, you scratch your head and say, well, did the person want to disappear? no, you know, based on his family life, his history, and law enforcement saying, no way. So what could have happened that would have wiped out any evidence that he was even there?
1: hmm hmm And there's a couple of cases where these people are in their 70s or 80s, the most experienced of the hunters, but not the most physically fit. And it's pretty clear to everyone they go hunting with, to their friends and family, they aren't moving far. Maybe this is someone that decided to stay back and hold the campsite down while everyone else goes out. They come back to the campsite, and that person's missing, which is the strangest because everybody was on the same page, that they're not going anywhere, and they physically can't get very far. And that's just very puzzling.
0: And, you know, that's part of why those cases are in there is to make you think, well, if somebody was really mobile, then maybe they could walk out of the mountains. But these people, no. Their friends knew them and said, no, that person's not going far. That's the reason we were hunting in the way we were. We sat down a group of people, and we were pushing the deer towards them. And those guys wouldn't get up. They were just going to stand up and fire.
1: Mm. Yes. <laughs> just, it's hard to wrap your mind around fully what could possibly happen to these people. And there is one case, I believe it's in a wilderness area of New York, that was really intriguing to me because it hits all the major mysterious bullet points, but someone who was in the party did hear something, and that is a rare insight into some possibilities, right?
0: The way that story goes is a series of old hunters, like they're all between, say, 70 and 80 years old, maybe a little north of 80, a couple of them, And their sons and their relatives were going to walk a mile, two miles out and push the deer towards them. And these guys, there were a series of them, were about 50 yards apart sitting down, waiting for the deer to come their way. These guys have all been together for 50 years. They're best friends. They own a hunting camp. And during that time, during an interview with one of these guys, I accidentally asked him, well, did you hear anything strange out there? And he goes, yeah, I did. And I thought, wow, okay, because he looked disturbed when he said it. And I said, well, what did you hear? And he goes, you know, I just can't explain it. I've never heard it before. I said, well, did you tell law enforcement? He goes, yeah, but they didn't really take me seriously. And I said, so you've never heard this before? Nope. And I said, so how can you describe it? And later on, he kind of said it, it was a clank or a clang kind of sound it was instant it was fast and it was while they were sitting down waiting for the deer to get pushed towards them and he says you know in 55 years of hunting and being in the woods i've never heard anything like it well then you couple that with well 50 55 years in the woods he's never lost a hunting partner either now it wasn't directly in the region that his buddy was sitting but it was still a sound he heard in conjunction with the time he and his partner were waiting for the deer to get pushed towards him. I've never had anything like that told to me before, and you could tell that this man was really disturbed by it.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's just another one of those cases where it seems like law enforcement, or maybe the further up the chain you go, some of these odd clues are either dismissed, or maybe they're not letting on everything they know, and I believe this is one of those cases where the FBI was involved and it really isn't their jurisdiction if I'm not mistaken, right?
0: So back, when I was digging through cases in 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, I started to see the FBI showing up on cases where they shouldn't really be interested. Now, the FBI has protocol that they can participate in a search of a missing child, young child. But the FBI does not does not search or participate in searches on missing adults. They investigate criminal activity. That's what the FBI does. Now, when they started to show up on these adult cases, all of a sudden made me start thinking, okay, they're looking at something I'm looking at and they can't figure it out either. That's why they're showing up. Now, nobody on that New York case could figure out why the FBI was there or who called them. But two agents, show up way up in the middle of the woods and just say that they're going to monitor the case. Now, as someone who's worked with the FBI before, these people are the best at documentation. And these two agents went up there and I'm sure wrote one heck of a report that went to the FBI profiling section. Those profilers look at it and they try to find similar cases, kind of like what I'm doing, that fit the mold of what they researched and what they wrote about and try to match it together. Now, when I spoke to one of the search and rescue commanders there on film, he said, the FBI has never been on a search I've been on before, and I have no idea who called them or why they were there. He thought maybe they brought some resources with them to help, but he goes, I didn't know what they were. because I can't even tell you why they were there. Now, the other part on this that is really odd is that That New York area, the upper northern New York region, has a lot of wildlife. And when we were out there filming, we thought it was odd that we didn't see any wildlife. And when I asked the search and rescue commander if while he was searching, if he had found or seen or any of his people had come across any wildlife at all, he goes, no. And that was odd. He said, we didn't see any squirrels. We didn't see any deer. We didn't see any bear. We didn't see anything. And these guys had hunted that general upper New York area many times, and this was state land they were on, yet nothing was seen. I think that's weird.
1: That's very weird. And it kind of jives with some paranormal experiences we've heard about from witnesses where they say it does get quiet before they encounter a cryptid or weird orbs in the sky. And it also kind of jives with that profile point that dogs can't find the scent or they won't find the scent. We can't communicate with the dogs to find out why things are going differently, but perhaps they're just like, I'm not going there. But I think that all fits. Animals are very intuitive and I guess they know something is going on here.
0: They obviously have the ability to pick up a scent hundreds, sometimes thousands of times better than us. So if there was one there, either it didn't want to track for some reason or it couldn't pick it up. But in almost all of the cases, 99.8% of the cases I write about, canines cannot pick up a scent. Trackers brought in can't pick up a track. And in this case in New York, that's exactly what happened.
1: Hmm. Wow. So as I had mentioned in the intro, there is so much speculation as to what's happening. Bigfoot, alien, secret government projects, natural portal places on the planet. Have you gotten any closer to an answer in the last few years? Have you kind of circled around a possibility that maybe you hadn't five years
0: ago? I think all of those things you brought up are things that people have written to me about. and Yeah. And I hear about it all the time. I don't think that there's an easy answer, and I doubt that there's one answer. It may be a multitude of things. I did a two hour special on the History Channel at the beginning of this year. You can watch it on Amazon right now called Vanished. And in that, the production company sent me to Wisconsin to interview a physicist. And we sat down and we had a great talk. And the one thing that came out of it was I told him that there were times when people were on the trail, specifically parents, and they said, yeah, my child was in front of me. I saw him the whole time. Then they kind of got out of my view for just a few seconds and they were gone. And you hear that so many times that it came to me that it was almost something was appeared to be waiting for the time that the target wasn't in the eyes of the witnesses, and then all of a sudden it was gone. And this physicist said, and I asked him, I said, well, we were talking about portals specifically, I said, can portals be targeted? And he kind of smiled and he goes, Dave, you know, there's a group of physicists in the world that are studying this topic right now to see if it could be used in that manner, almost to militarize it. And he says, I can guarantee 100% there are things that might be used in different words that are portals, but he said, you know, can it be targeted? We're thinking it must be able to be because nobody that we know about that has come forward and said, yeah, we're walking down a street in New York City and we see an opening happen in front of us and our friend walking on the sidewalk 20 feet in front of us disappear. You don't hear about that happening. Mm-hmm. But you do have these strange disappearances when the people are out of view. So the portal idea was an interesting one that gave it some, and this guy gave it some scientific validation.
1: Yeah, that is fascinating because as we mentioned, that one guy did hear that strange noise that sounded like something mechanical, like a steel trap closing perhaps something in that realm. Maybe that's the sound of a portal gun or something. But I was thinking about the portal places hypothesis and it is interesting, but the government would have to have known where these were if they were natural and then developed them into national parks away from the cities on purpose. But I guess in the case of them being able to be targeted, it's possible that it's some kind of military experimentation or fine tuning of their, Technology, or maybe it's not their technology.
0: Well, and I'll just stay in the science realm for a second. There's a couple of videos that were made by some companies that show their stealth technology. I've seen it in almost a blanket type of format where you pick up a blanket and it appears as though it's directly like the area around it. So you can't tell that something's picked up but whatever's behind that, you can't see it. So there is some stealth technology going on right now that is phenomenally good that could, you know, you could wrap somebody in something and take them away. The issue with that is that obviously the person would scream, there'd be drag marks, unless there's the technology that you could just remove them from the area quickly using this stealthy type thing. But, Again, that's something that's out there right now that somebody had brought up to me a few years ago, and I said, wow, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, you'd really have to zap them in an instant, and it'd have to remove everything that they're touching, regardless of its material type, because otherwise, they'd drop their gun, they'd drop their hat. You'd see blood if it was something really violent, but again, it's just not there.
0: And then, probably one of the other things I get a lot of, and I'll talk about it because this came out of the first movie, is people said, Well, it's pretty obvious what's happening to these kids is that they're getting picked up by a giant bird and they're getting flown away. That way, there's no tracks and there's no scent. And I said, Yeah, but you're forgetting something. These kids are disappearing in sometimes extremely close proximity to the parents. If a giant bird picked up a child and their talons went into that child, strong enough that it could lift it off the ground, that would be a huge wound, and that kid would be screaming their heads off. Mm -hmm. And when the child was eventually found, those wounds would be evident in the kid. And none of those things ever happened.
1: And the second film is called The Hunted. I'm sure that is a catchy way to insinuate that these are all hunter cases. But also kind of implies that you think something is getting them to some degree. I mean, is that right?
0: Well, all of the movies and all of my books start with Missing 411, and then whatever the name is. So Missing 411, The Hunted, it was a takeoff of, yeah, the movie's about hunters, but who's really the hunted in the movie? You know, is it the hunters going after the deer? Is it the hunters going after the bear or the elk? Or are they the hunted?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's odd about the prospect of it being a military operation or there being some kind of advanced hunter that's out there in the woods waiting to pick people off on the edges is just how much space this covers. I mean, 60 clusters. You've gone all across the English-speaking world. It's hard to say it's a government project because the coordination between all these different countries, it wouldn't really be there. And it can't be just something in Yosemite because this is happening all over the place. I guess if it was something hunting them, it would be something that has no problem getting around the planet and is just leagues above us.
0: Well, I think the people who are just listening for the first time probably think, well, you know, this must be an issue for the last 50 years. But since I've started to write the books, I've found identical disappearances that match our profile points going back hundreds of years. So no, this isn't a local issue, and this is not a recent, just a recent issue. About two weeks ago, I got an email from a woman who lost her husband in France hiking, and it's an exact profile match. Now, I never heard about this case. And again, it may be a language issue. Maybe search and rescue doesn't get the publicity. Somebody goes lost in the mountains, no big deal. And it doesn't get the worldwide publicity that it does. But if this woman hadn't contacted me, I'd never have known about her husband.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm sure that happens a lot at this point, right? Yeah, it does. Mm. So another thing I like about your work is how you break down the terrain and the landscape of some of these cluster areas, because those are important details And in the film, it's translated even better than in the text because you're showing images, you're showing maps, and you can really see exactly where these people go missing. And in the film, you say that the Santa Fe cluster is one of the most intriguing. And I'm curious, why is that particular cluster intriguing to you? What stands out about it?
0: So Santa Fe, New Mexico that cluster intrigues me because there's been a variety of ages and males and females that have gone missing there. That's number one. A lot of times it's just all males or it's just all females. This one has a little of both. Also, the topography of that area and the weather in that area intrigues me a lot because you've got super hot weather down in the valley and then you've got temperatures that are quite a bit lower up by the Santa Fe Ski Resort and higher in the mountains. And you've got elk, deer, you've got a really diverse area with diverse disappearances. But when you get down into the bottom of it and you start looking at the types of disappearances, the ages, the sexes, wow, there's a lot of continuity there that people don't know about. Now, New Mexico is unusual because the New Mexico State Police is kind of the head organization in all search and rescue, which is not normally the case in most states. And because New Mexico has a mandatory disclosure law, which most states do not, you can get documents out of New Mexico where you can't get them out of other states. And including documents, you also get crime scene photos and a lot of other things. And because of that, we've learned a lot out of New Mexico cases.
1: Hmm. Yeah. In the film, you cover several disappearances in this area, at least three. The one I honed in on was one where a body was found near a destroyed camp, naked, face down in a creek, or their face was in the creek. Just very odd. I mean, this is another one of those situations where why did this person make a camp? Was it their camp? Why weren't they also signaling for help if they decided, oh, I can't get back to where I was. I need to make a little shelter for the night or start a fire. You would think they would also be screaming for help, but just strange.
0: It's very strange. And in that case, we had the crime scene photos and the coroner writes a report that, well, the woman wasn't in any body of water and her face was never proven to be in any body of water I had the crime scene photos right in front of me, and she was completely in water. And her face was in the water. I'm not sure how they could even write some of the things they do, but why was this person naked? Why was the clothes thrown around? Why was the camp in shambles? Why didn't she call for help? How did she disappear? All of those things don't make any sense.
1: Right. And when you see the actual photo in the film... It's definitely eerie, and we're not talking about drowning types of water. We're talking about just a few inches of water. It just, the whole thing makes no sense, and a lot of times when these cases are talked about, I hear critics say, oh, well, this is hypothermia. When people hit hypothermia, they do have this odd habit of removing their clothes, and Sure, that might be in the mix somewhere, but it definitely doesn't explain why people are not found at all. Why the clothes in some cases, especially boots or shoes are set very neatly on the path. I mean, a person who would be distressed and in a hypothermic state, they're not looking to make things neat and tidy. They should be freaking out all over the place. But I don't think that really answers much of the questions, but you do probably fold in this hypothermia element to some
0: degree, right? Yeah, this hypothermia theory about missing people is interesting to me. I hear about it all the time, and I have a few questions about it, and that is, is that if people strip themselves naked when they have hypothermia, I want people to think about this clearly. then why don't we find naked climbers at high altitude when they're dead? And they died by hypothermia.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about it, but if that's the case, if they aren't found at high altitudes, you'd think that'd be where they'd be found the most often. Yeah, and naked. It is a weird one. I do love getting into the details of these cases, but people really should see the film because you can get all those details in the interviews that we can't fit into a conversation. And when you hear from the witnesses or investigators firsthand, It really makes a big difference. And there was one case in the film where I believe you're talking to the sheriff and he's clearly rattled by the whole thing, but he is walking you through point by point on a map. Here's where we saw him last. Here's where he was supposed to be going. And this is one of those cases where there is GPS data that shows where he was or where his GPS was at least. But this is such a wild case, and it is one of the ones that makes me think about that aspect of, this person didn't seem to think there was anything wrong, even though there's a panicked search for them.
0: Well, that case is odd. Now, there was some GPS, but there wasn't a lot. There was one GPS signal that was received when he was talking on his radio to his partners. This is another case where they had a radio, and he spoke to them briefly, and then he stopped using the radio. This guy disappeared in some heavy mountains and reported missing. And you're right. The sheriff is absolutely perplexed. A guy who has 25 plus years in search and rescue. And we put him in a helicopter with us and we flew the route this guy supposedly took. And he said several times, this doesn't make any sense. And there were multiple counties looking for this hunter. And he was missing his boots During the search, they found his boots next to a creek, again water, and to get to a point where they eventually found his body, it would be a phenomenal hike for you or me in good weather. But it had snowed about 24 inches, and the search parties come in one direction. He supposedly was going the other direction towards them, yet they never found any tracks going out in the snow. That's clue number one. Canines never pick up any scent around that campsite. That was number two. Number three, he didn't have his boots. So he had to have hiked out in bare feet through a shale boulder outcropping that would have torn up anybody's feet. And it's a six-air-mile walk. So nobody walks six air miles, so he probably walked 12 miles. And then nobody can find him, even though they find his backpack And they found some other things of his in that area. In the backpack, they found some food, some water, a firearm, a pistol that was loaded. He never used it. And then months and months later, they found his remains somewhat near the backpack, but not real close. And they could never determine the cause of death. They could never determine how he made that trip. They never could determine why he didn't use the walkie-talkie or his firearm to signal for help that case perplexed so many people. This body was found just on the outskirts of a giant ranch in these mountains. And the people who owned the ranch, they were absolutely completely perplexed. They could not figure out what happened, why this person acted the way they did, nothing. It was bizarre.
1: Hmm. And you mentioned they found his remains. If I'm not mistaken... They didn't find everything. I think they found his skull under a tree, a pelvis bone partially buried somewhere else, never found his feet because you asked a question about the boots, and and that's just crazy. I mean, he was dismantled somehow.
0: It's hard to say what happened, and they couldn't give an adequate explanation what happened to his body, but when I asked them if they found any socks or shoes or, you know, anything to suggest that maybe he got there on his own, and they said, no, we didn't even find any feet.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned that backpack. It was set against a tree with his wallet, ID, snacks in it, his gun. It was, like, very neatly laid out. But, and this is the case that is really just my favorite that I just digested over and over They, during the search, did find a cup and an open energy drink, like, sitting out on a stump where someone would just kind of take a rest period. And from that area, you can clearly see the buildings below. You can see civilization. So if you're there and you're lost, you don't have a hard time navigating back to where you were. And that's one of those mysterious details of, like, did this person even realize there was a problem?
0: And the weirdest part about that is, let's say you're on your last five ounces of energy and you just didn't have the ability to climb down that hill. You've got your pistol right there, fire off a few rounds, and those ranchers are going to know, well, nobody should be in that area. Let's go see what's going on.
1: Mm -hmm. Man. And another thing that was slipped in there without much context is that information from his cell phone was just not recoverable.
0: No. No, they tried, and they could not get anything out of it.
1: Mm. And that kind of brings me to another thing I love about your work, is I interview a lot of people who compile paranormal and mysterious cases, and sometimes we're talking a 100 years ago. Sometimes we're looking back at the 1920s and 30s, and you think, well, this is interesting, but whatever got them if you think of it as a living thing, is probably also dead now. These things are so far back in the past, it's really hard to get the full context to explain. Is there actually a mystery here? But your cases, I mean, they do go back a ways, but you're also nailing all these cases that have happened in just the last 20 years in a very technological world. And people have cell phones and GPS, and it just makes these experienced woodsmen going missing even more strange Do you get a lot of electromagnetic odd behavior with technological devices in these more recent cases?
0: You know, it's strange that I don't look for it, but when you follow the technology path and you understand what it can give you from an investigator's viewpoint, you have to go down that road. And if there was an easy answer, I probably wouldn't even be presenting the case because they would have found the guy or. There would have been an easy answer as to what happened, but it's those cases where you go down the technology path and there are no answers or there's no data and there's no answer for no data and there's no reason why the guy wouldn't use his radio or his phone or whatever it was. You just scratch your head and go, what is going on?
1: Right. It kind of possibly leads back to the Portal idea of some kind of electromagnetic anomaly or maybe some kind of field that creates a space of electromagnetic anomaly and devices break and biological beings just disappear from that space. I just can't explain how something or someone would be able to control another person's cell phone if you're hunting them. It's just out of this world.
0: Well, you know, One of the stories we covered in the recent movie dealt with a cell phone and it dealt with a female hunter who had a strange encounter in the woods. And a lot of people who haven't even seen the movie, but just have watched the trailers have misinterpreted this to mean we're pointing to some kind of cause. The reality is in the movie, we talked about whether we should put in any of these strange things that hunters have encountered in the woods. And we thought, you know, we know of two cases where there's scientific validation that something really, really odd happened to these people. And in that case, this woman took a picture, and her phone took a photo that, according to Verizon, the phone could not have taken that photo. But according to Verizon, that phone did take that photo. Because of the size of the pixelation and the type of photo it took, They guaranteed the photo was taken by that phone, but according to their engineers, the software and the hardware could not have taken that photo. So that explanation, people are probably scratching their heads, but facts are facts. Something really, really odd happened. This hunter took a photo of something very odd, and Verizon validated it and said, yeah, it took the photo, and we can't explain it.
1: Right, right. That is one of my favorite parts of the film. I'm glad you brought that up because the dimensions of the photograph that were taken do not match dimensions that the phone can take. And of course, the photo is all warped and you can't really see a lot in it. You can see a little bit, but it looks almost like old cameras, how if you wound them incorrectly, you could take a photo that was like half on two different cells It looks like it's kind of two photos smashed together that's just kind of a blurry image, but that metadata is just so telling, and there's no explanation for it, except that it is verifiable proof of something very strange that can affect our technology.
0: Exactly, Greg. And Again, that's one of those cases where there was scientific evidence. That's why we put it in there, and we wanted to include in this movie some of the odd things that hunters had faced in the woods. And trust me, I've heard hundreds of things, and some of them are unbelievable. But the two cases we put in the movie, there was some type of scientific evidence that proved that these hunters had encountered what they claimed in those woods. Again, not pointing to what might have taken people, just showing the type of oddity that hunters have encountered.
1: Yes, and the last thing from the film I wanted to ask you about before making some room for cases in your law book is the Sierra Camp. You cover some disappearances near it, and they are as interesting as any, but this is also not far from Yosemite, which is worth noting. But there is a secluded camp, or there was a secluded camp for hunters that... A small group of guys had been using since the 70s, and they had a handful of strange experiences, including some thing nearby making very unsettling sounds, which they had captured year after year, and that alone is worth the $5 rental just to hear these sounds for yourself, but as you mentioned, you might not have even included these weird clues that hunters had experienced, and I'm so glad you did, because that's not the only weird thing that happened around this camp, is it?
0: No. And if you think back, actually, the camp was occupied since the mid-1950s. But these incidents started to happen in the late 60s, early 70s. And one of the hunters said, hey, you know what, I'm going to bring up a recorder. And this is early 1970s. This is way before digital. And he took some really interesting recordings. And he said, you know, I want somebody to tell me what this is. So he took it to a university and he took it to an audio professor and they ran it against things that they knew already existed and made sounds. And then they ran it against humans. And they said, no, it's not a human. It's outside the realm of what humans could produce. And it's nothing known animal wise. And they said that it hadn't been re-recorded; It hadn't been recorded over. And the reason that's important is that in the tape. You can hear multiple sounds almost simultaneously, one stepping on another. And the professor said, no, these weren't re-recordings. These weren't laid on top of each other to make the sound or to make double sounds. This is actually as it occurred. Again, if it had happened now, it wouldn't have meant hardly anything because digitally you can reproduce and do anything. But this was done in the early 70s, way before anything audio-wise That advance could be done. And that's where it holds its credibility. And that's why it was in the film.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And it really is worth the price of admission just to hear that. You got to hear it with your own ears. These things somewhere nearby are making calls. And as you say, the people who are recording it are kind of mimicking that sound of calling back. And so the person who's analyzing this can clearly tell there's someone near, someone far. This is a human voice. This is something outside of the octave range of human beings. And I just thought another curious thing, because I'm always thinking about what do the authorities know? Apparently, they found this camp in 2014 and forced them to take it down and dismantle it. And so now that location can be kind of talked about because it isn't this secret oasis for hunters that it was. But that's curious. I mean, I guess authorities are going to do that. But, I mean, I wonder what they know about that area.
0: Good question. I think they just got mad that they had this structure that they made out of logs in the middle of the woods. It was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we rode almost a full day on horseback to get to this location. There's no trails to it. Unless you knew exactly where it is, you're not finding it. And we were there for a week. And we didn't really encounter anything odd. One of the film guys that we were with, video guys, heard something strange in the middle of the night. We didn't. But other than that, we just sat around and heard the stories and did some filming and did a lot of trekking around that area. And as a very unusual side note, as someone who's been in the woods hundreds of, maybe thousands of times, Everyone at that site for the week we were there did not see one animal. Mm. Again,
1: again with the animals. And as we're starting to wrap this thing up, I guess I would ask, do you have any advice with all you know for people who are spending some time in the wilderness? Any tips for not finding ourselves in one of your
0: books? So the one commonality, and I haven't found this yet, it may exist, I have not read about it, and that is, is that nobody has disappeared carrying a firearm and a personal locator beacon. I have two cases where somebody disappeared carrying a personal locator beacon. That is, you can buy those on Amazon for about 200 bucks. You activate it, it sends a message to a satellite. Satellite sends a message to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, says, oh, there's distress. They send a search and rescue team, and they can find you within 10 feet of that activation. I have told everybody that hikes needs to carry this. Why? Because if you're hiking off trail and you break your leg, there is the chance we will never find you. And so with a personal locator beacon, we will find you every time if you don't move. So carrying a gun and a personal locator beacon is a combination. I can't explain why no one's ever disappeared, but I haven't seen it. Always, always tell somebody where you're hiking and when you're going to be out. Contact that person when you're out. Check the weather before you go hiking. Always carry a hard copy map and a trail satellite map if you can. Always carry a couple energy bars and a couple of bottles of water. And the last thing is, this costs you like five or six bucks if you go to REI or an outdoor store, or an emergency blanket weighs about a pound, if that. Very light it's bright orange. If you get stranded in the woods, if you hit bad weather, you can huddle up with this thing, keep you warm. And it's an excellent thing to wave if you're ever lost because it's so bright orange. But in the movie, Missing 411, The Hunted, we bring in some hunters and we talk about these safety aspects. And I think that's one of the best parts of the movie that I wish everybody would watch and really heed what's said. Because I think it's important, and that's one angle in the movie that we wanted to make clear that we wanted to push. And right now, that movie, Missing 41100, is available for rent at iTunes, Amazon, almost every place online. If you go to our website, the Can-Am Missing Project, C-A-N as in Nancy, A-M as in Mary, Can-Am, like Canadian American, Project, you can buy even a DVD and read about all of our books, and you can purchase our books online there. Do not buy the books on Amazon. You'll get ripped off. Amazon wants three or four times what we'll charge for the book.
1: Right. And the authors get ripped off as well on Amazon. Yes, sir. And just in terms of having these things, it does seem like whatever is grabbing people has an ability to scan them or know what they have. And that's so creepy because they're hitting people with 100% accuracy, it seems. There's no cases of, I got grabbed, then my beacon went off, and then they found me, and here I am, and we caught the predator. It's like, they seem to know what we have on us. They seem to be able to identify the technologies that people are carrying with them. And that's just a really creepy thing.
0: Very creepy. (laughs) I wish I understood it more, but I don't. You know, maybe if we talk in another six, nine months... I'll have more information. Every book, every story, every disappearance I read about, I've learned something. So you're getting the most current information out of me right now.
1: I love it. I love it. And in terms of taking the work further, since these cases have spanned almost the entire English-speaking world and Missing 411 has gotten so popular, are there any attempts to cross the language barrier and see if the vast landscapes of Russia or China or the jungles of Vietnam have these same disappearances?
0: You know, my guess is they do. And there have been some people that were bilingual that have sent me translated documents. That door is starting to open.
1: Hmm. Yes, I would love to see that because I do think sometimes our language and cultural barriers kind of keep our data sets tight into what we're familiar with. And this seems to be as far as we can tell with the English-speaking world, on every continent. So you got to assume it's in their world as well, and maybe, maybe there would be some added insights.
0: You'd hope so. But I do think you're correct. I think it's much more widespread than we understand.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, what's next for you? Are there plans on expanding beyond books and film?
0: You know, it's... Uh... It's a big task right now, just answering emails, phone calls, et cetera, about these missing cases. And people have said, oh, you know, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? I am spread so thin right now, it's hard to explain for people to understand. I know that there's people out there that don't want to read books, and which is the reason we started to do the movies. And I'm very fortunate that my books all have five-star reviews on Amazon. So if you want to go out and check if the book's worth reading, look at Amazon. And I'm very, very fortunate that this latest movie, I think we figured out the formula. I think that if we do another movie, it'll be along the same veins and the same style as this latest one, because I think people like this. So if we do another one, it'll probably be along the same genre.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yes, I've read maybe half of the eight books at this point. They are all very thick. They're phone book thick, and they're just case after case. No wasted time. They're definitely great resource material. I can understand how even for you giving interviews, you know, it's really easy to resource these things in the book because of the way you lay them out, the bibliography and glossary you have in the back. It's really great stuff. I mean, it is basically a case file in book format.
0: I tried to make it easy on everybody to kind of go through it, kind of like the way you would as a policeman. So there's not a lot of drama. There's not a lot of intrigue other than what is there. And in the stories themselves, there is. But I don't throw a lot of extra into it.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that's wise. So right on. Well, I really do appreciate your time. And I can't thank you enough for the work you do. So impressive. Of course, as you said, both films are available to rent or buy on most digital platforms. Is there anything else we should say in closing about following up with your work, getting in touch, anything like that?
0: You know, the biggest thing is right now, I really wish that everybody out there would take a look at that movie, because I think that there is some trail safety guidelines and some stories out there that people would think, you know. There's not a story I've ever written about, Greg, where people thought it would happen to them. Yet every one of those cases, there's a victim and a victim's family that's living a, a nightmare. So if you have a night free, go onto one of those digital platforms. It only costs a few bucks right now to watch. Watch the movie. And I think you'd be impressed.
1: I agree. We definitely left a lot of details and a lot of cases from the film on the table for people to check out. Because when you're doing an interview like this, you don't want to give away a full movie. Yet when you have eight books with a 100 cases each, it's easy to pull some cases out of there and go through them in minute detail. But there's definitely some things left on the table that I hope people check out. So huge thanks again. Keep up the great work and take care out there.
0: Hey, thanks a million, Greg. Well,
1: there is definitely something strange in the neighborhood, higher side Chatters, and I am so happy we got David back to break it down with a long overdue update. And I fielded a lot of comments about it being time to have David back, and I don't disagree. I've asked a couple times, but when a person is in high demand, it's about catching them at the right moment, like when they have something new coming out. So the stars aligned, and I like to think we made the best of it. Of course, it's a little bit different to cover material from a film rather than a book, but we had a great return to form in the second hour where we could just outline some cases from the Land, Air, and Water book, including a lot of unconventional high strangeness cases, and maybe some that speak to more specific phenomenon than the bulk of the cases in David's work, which I think are still pretty mysterious and much harder to pin down. But as far as paranormal documentaries that I've seen lately go, Missing 411 Hunted is about as good as you can ask for. It's fresh, it's not a UFO doc, it's not a Bigfoot doc, and it's amazing to hear from people who were on the fringes of some of these cases or the people who knew the missing victims and their take on this whole thing. It's really well done, and I feel... So bad, actually, for the people affected by this. David obviously has a lot of empathy and sympathy for the victims in these cases, and we should too. It's not just juicy, paranormal, radio, missing people material. It's a real thing happening out there, or a couple of things. And it's damn scary, and there's a lot of very real fallout from whatever it is when it comes to talking about it, I like to think that I have a deeper understanding of certain things, like the nuances within paranormal categories, than I did the first time. Like the fact that maybe there aren't well-defined paranormal categories, but another would be the fact that a lot of indigenous cultures just have these areas in which they do not go, that they say are cursed or just contain a very bad mojo. They recognize it, they respect it, and they don't mess with it. Our culture doesn't have that reverence for unknown dangers of a spiritual nature, and maybe this is the result. If these are portal places of some kind, maybe they're not just open to one thing, but are actually exposed to a world of things. Maybe that could help us out with why so many of these cases are the same but different. Yeah, they check a lot of profile point boxes, but in ways that are too different to be the same thing. At least that's how I see them. Of course, we have the issue of these paranormal places conveniently being overlaid within national parks, and it's possible that we have a subconscious attunement to avoid these places. Maybe we have some sort of subtle magnetic repulsion that doesn't register to our conscious minds, and that is how, over time, these portal places become the last remaining wildernesses in an industrial society could be that. I also think the idea of an advanced predator is intriguing, something that learned that if you hang out in these areas, the prey will come to you. But predators don't usually leave people behind to be found, alive or dead. Unless, again, it's some sort of predator of a spiritual nature, which I think is a very real thing, that is a part of more cultures than it's missing from, it just happens to be missing from ours. The other thing that David brought up that I hadn't heard proposed before directly was a type of portal opening technology, or testing, of that sort of stuff in these areas. That really got the wheels turning for me. And it's not like that's David's conclusion. But sometimes I think we do look at government as a perpetrator for things that are really far older and deeper and embedded in our world in ways we just don't understand because that's actually a lot more terrifying than some CIA operation. And as for technology, if we did happen to be going into cursed areas or America as an empire is dealing with some curse of the indigenous people, Does that qualify as a technology? Indigenous technology, maybe. Magic is a natural technology as far as I'm concerned. So, I don't know. Just something to consider. But I definitely appreciate David coming back again. I hope we don't go so long in between updates next time. But if you liked him being here, it's important to let him know. And that's true for all our guests. So that when they do have new material out, they know which shows have been the most impactful to them. They know which audiences are hungry for more. So don't be shy when it comes to that. And in higher side news, a lot of people are aware that we just went through this crazy website overhaul, and it didn't go very smoothly, but the team has worked all week on correcting a laundry list of issues, and I can't think of any major problems related to the site migration that haven't been solved. And we have reached the promised land. I think you're going to love the new version of the higher side chats.com. I'm trying to be not just one of the highest quality podcasts in the Strange Stuff conspiracy genre when it comes to the content, but I also want the website to be a top-level website as well. And I've been doing this for pretty much eight or nine years, and some of the tools and plugins and systems that I started with were the only options at the time. And now the systems that a person can use to have something like extra content for paid subscribers, they're nearly endless. So I made some major upgrades to get us away from older systems and transferred to some that are newer, smoother, and better tools to be future-resistant. I'd say future-proof, but a show that talks about conspiracy is never future-proof, it seems. But we had a few rough weeks... Making updates that will take us through many good years. And I think that's a worthy trade. I know some of our oldest and most passionate plus members are having reoccurring access issues around the time that their payments come through. And I fix these manually for people when it happens. But for the long term, I think the developers I'm working with are all in consensus that the only thing that will really fix what these people are dealing with is for them to cancel the old subscription and sign up fresh in the new system. Not my favorite solution, but I think people can understand how sometimes older data just isn't apples to apples in a newer system. So if you're suffering from this issue, before you get charged again, maybe cancel and resubscribe if you don't mind. Talk to me about a little extra time for your trouble, but sometimes this just is what it is. Of course, I'm gonna contact these people individually, and help walk them through this process. But if you're technologically inclined, and you don't mind making that change, it would be a huge help to both of us. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but the basic issue for these long-standing Plus members is that the old Archaic system used to charge for a monthly subscription every 30 days. Regardless of how many days were in a month, and the new system is smart enough to keep everything tied to the same date of each month. And of course, not every month has 30 days. So on months with 31 days, the new system looks for a charge, doesn't see one, and takes away access. And my developers could probably fix this, but it's a policy of the payment processor not to allow for a backend change related to someone's billing cycle. And that's fair. You don't want to sign up for something that's monthly and then someone changes it to be weekly or daily and that's not what you signed up for so I get it ethically even though this is only a small minor change a change to a billing cycle is a change to a billing cycle and I don't think we can do it so we're going to have to go through that cancel re-sign up process for that small category of people that are dealing with that issue what can you do? Like I said, the technology changes, new systems emerge, and I like to put the plus money back into the business when I can, and that's what this whole thing was. I think it's easy to see the new site and infrastructure is a lot better and more professional, and now that our growing pains are pretty much behind us, come on in. The water is fine. Most listeners know that we keep the show operating at a high level and commercial-free, by releasing the first hour with no caveats or asks for donations or anything like that. And then, if you like what I do, we have an extended two-hour version of all the interviews I do around here, and that is for Plus members who sign up for the low, low cost of $8 a month. It's simple. Everyone's doing it. You understand. But I try to make sure I'm bringing you the best shows with the best guests I can, and that's my job. Not so bad, actually. But we did just have two great episodes, one with Nassim Harameen talking about his model for the reality we're in and the Hollow Earth, and then another with Recluse talking about his Jeffrey Epstein coverage. And we got two more coming out very soon, one about geomantic cities and the magical takeover of the ancient American landscape by the early founders. That's a bit of a mind blower. And we also have a health show based on the structured water work of Dr. Pollock and Optimum hydration so stick around same bat time same bat channel and i'll see you later sign up for plus at the higher rent david's movie missing 411 hunted across all the digital platforms you know of and i'm getting out of here i've done my part your move environmental entities mysterious missing people makers and the plethora of paranormal problems lurking in the darkness This
2: is important, hear what I say I'm trying to tell you It's not paranoia, not in my head It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door, while I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand slaughter for the rest of your life oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our company? But we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here But you can find noses Drown out the noise Now use that altar End up your magic game And listen to THC You know you go with the end. you're getting woke you say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die tough luck my friend did you get the memo can't you say that we're